Hey, Disney fans, looking for the latest Disney news? And interviews with some of Disney's biggest stars? Have we got the podcast for you. Welcome to D23 Inside Disney. I'm Courtney from Disney Parks Blog. I'm Jeffrey from D23. And I'm Sherry from Oh My Disney. And together we are taking you Inside Disney. Why, hello there. Hello, hello. Hello. Oh, it's great to see your faces, even though Courtney is a little bit, she's a little bit shady. And I don't mean that in the the shifty kind of way. Uh, Apparently a light bulb has blown out in her room and she's silhouetted. She looks very mysterious and elegant. She really does. Oh, yes. Good thing I can hear and see you guys because I'm in the dark over here, but all good. (laughs) Heading to Walmart right after this. I am frequently in the dark. Yeah. Anyway, (laughs) that aside. I can like really talk more about it because the episode will probably drop before the press release does by maybe just a few hours. But Mm -hmm. by the time most people are listening to this, we will have announced the summer cover or covers for Disney 23. So if you've not already checked them out, head over to D23.com, provided it's sort of like midday on Thursday. (laughs) (laughs) So that's all the tease I can do. Excited. I have a little tease. Ooh. We are gearing up for halfway to Halloween over on the Disney Parks blog. So we've been doing some fun stuff that we will share with the world on April 20th. Also today, the day this comes out. Wow. Happy Halloween. That's so exciting. That means we're almost halfway to Christmas time. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) We've not even gotten actually like one week of warm weather. So no, (laughs) no, none of that. Speak for yourself, Jeffrey. It's been hot in Florida. Fair enough. Fair enough. (laughs) Sherry, what about you? Well, I got to shout out my team here at work because we were nominated for two Shorty Awards. Yay! Oh my gosh, congratulations. Thank congratulations. you. For what? Thanks. So we are nominated. Pixar Social was nominated for two different awards. One was for a video series that we have called Cooking with Pixar, which is exactly what it sounds like. Our Turning Red episode is a finalist for instructional video. And we also were nominated for this really awesome Ratatouille scene recreation where we worked with an influencer who looks exactly like Anton Ego. Yeah, so check that out. That's a finalist for vertical video. And it's not friend of the pod, Andrew Barth Feldman? <laughs> no, no different doesn't. doppelganger. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, congratulations. That's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you. Shout ah. out to the team. Woohoo. Woohoo. And also shout out to Disney legend Don Hahn, who joins us this week on the podcast. First of all, I think most people may know, certainly if you were at the Disney legend ceremony last year at D23 Expo, Don was not there to pick up his Disney legend award because, of course, that morning he discovered he had a little touch of the COVID. So he talks all about that, which is, of course, just like everyone's like, ugh, worst nightmare Bad of timing. an award. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and some stuff from Making of Beauty and the Beast that I had not heard him talk about before. And he's talked about that on our show before, or Bean Beast, as Sherry likes to call him. <laughs> but we got a lot of news to get to. So, Courtney, why don't we uh, dig a little deeper for some news? Ooh, I love that transition. So I am so excited to share that more details have been announced for Tiana's Bayou Adventure, y'all. Yay! So of course, as we know, the attraction opens at both Walt Disney World and Disneyland in 2024. But last week, the Disney Parks blog shared a ton of new details, including, are you ready? 
Yes, you're ready. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Right. My eyebrows sorry, went yes. up, but I was, I was silent. on the edge of my seat. <laughs> yes, <laughs> captivating. All right. So, Mama Odie will joke with guests following a special display of her magic. Ooh, I love me some Mama yes. Odie. Mama Odie, Jennifer Lewis will yes. be voicing Mama Odie in the attraction. Woo-hoo. Guests will actually meet a brand new cast of original Disney characters. And speaking of original, there's going to be brand new original music alongside, of course, our favorite tunes from the movie. And this is my favorite, y'all. The scent of beignets being prepared will Ugh. fill the attraction queue. Can you believe that? Serious? Oh my gosh. You know they're going to have, like, as you're getting off the attraction, there's got to be a beignet stand because I will be buying them all up. Oh Oh my gosh. I cannot Uh. wait, y'all. So, to make room for this new experience, Splash Mountain at Disneyland will be closing next month on May 31st. And you can head right now to the Disney Parks blog for artist renderings of the ride and some artwork from New Orleans. Nice, yeah. nice. Well, Parks Blog made an announcement that had me seeing rainbows, which is that Disneyland After Dark is going to be celebrating its first ever Pride Night this June. Now, for those who haven't already heard, Pride Night is a separately ticketed event, and it's celebrating the LGBTQIA plus community, of which I am a part of, and its allies, of which you guys are a part of. That's right. You can read all about it at the Disney Parks blog. It's going to be on June 13th and 15th. There's going to be a bunch of special opportunities, a dance club along the rivers of America, some country line dancing at the Golden Horseshoe. But my fave, and you can see the concept art over at the Parks blog, are the new amazing outfits that are going to be worn by Mickey, Minnie, Clarabelle, Donald, Daisy, and Goofy. So uh, So cute. So amazing. I was so thrilled about all of this but specifically Clarabelle yeah (laughs) she's the star sorry Mickey she is she is a fashionista I love her well from our friends overseas Disneyland Paris has just dropped some new updates for this year so this is all in celebration of Disneyland Paris's 31st anniversary here's a little peek at what's coming Pizzeria Bellanote is going to have a new room inspired by Luca. How fitting. I know. Oh, such a good movie. And also the Mexican-themed restaurant Fuente del Oro in Frontierland is going to transform into Casa de Coco, Restaurante de Familia. Uh Get your Pixar in. Because also... Together, a Pixar musical adventure, which we've talked about on the pod before, comes to the studio theater this summer. And at Walt Disney Studios Park, Toon Plaza, that's going to be transformed into a new immersive experience, also paying tribute to Pixar films, including a new backdrop featuring Ember and Wade from Elemental. So that oh, is nice. that's pretty cool. Nice. And a non-Pixar news, but still Disneyland Paris fun 31st anniversary news it's a small world that's going to reopen May 5th, and there is so much more. So check out the Parks blog for all the deets. I mean, this should just be like D23 Inside Disney. Go to theparksblog.com. <laughs> <laughs> because the next story is, too. I just am realizing this, Courtney. Oh yes, my it sure is. So the 2023 Epcot International Food and Wine Festival dates have been released. They will be July 27th through November 18th with the following highlights to enjoy. 
So there's going to be over 25 global marketplaces throughout Epcot, including returning favorites and new ones, which are set to open later as summer turns into fall. A few announcements that I want to highlight. First of all, Pluto's Pumpkin Pursuit, which is a special pumpkin scavenger hunt, which is happening from September 29th through October 31st. I'm definitely checking that one out. Yeah. And one of my favorites, the Eat to the Beat concert series, which will return to the American Gardens Theater, has a huge lineup of guests. And we will definitely be sharing more details on, guess what? Dun, 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 the Disney Parks blog. <laughs> Yay. I love that Eat to the Beat concert series. Yay. I love to eat to any beat. To the beat. Yeah, fair. <laughs> fair. Jeffrey, look, chicken tenders. <gasps> JK, sports news. Oh. <laughs> but this is actually super cool. You're going to like this. ESPN has earned an industry-leading 59 Sports Emmys nominations. This is where the 44th Annual Sports Emmys Awards and marks the 10th straight year that ESPN has led the charge. So the winners are going to be awarded live and in person on May 22nd. But some of the nominees include Monday Night Football for live series, Sports Center for Studio Show Daily. And you know what? There's a lot. There's a whole lot. Nominations also include work presented on ESPN Deportes, ESPN News, ESPN U, SEC Network, and the ESPN app. So congrats to all our pals at ESPN. Yay. Go Chris LaPlaca and, and all our friends there. Woohoo. You will be over the moon for this next piece of news. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> You can now check out the trailer for the new Disney Plus movie, Crater, which debuts on May 12th. We've talked about this film on the pod a couple weeks ago, mm -hmm. but it's the one about a boy who's raised on a lunar mining colony. He fulfills his dad's last wish by hijacking a rover for one final adventure. Mm-hmm. Trailer is cool. I yeah. love that trailer. I'm like very in on this. I like I want to know what's in that crater. They like, you know, they mm -hmm. they do that tease and I'm like, ooh, very ooh, very gotta good. watch it. And I'm also very excited to raise the curtain, to light the light, and to get into a very crowded van with a bunch of rowdy Muppetational folk for the <laughs> Muppets Mayhem. Again, something we've been talking about for a while. They just released the first trailer, which is hilarious, in which you get to see some of the insane guest stars. The guest list is straight up crazy because Paula Abdul's there. And it what? is a crazy <laughs> X crazy with Rachel Bloom. And it's a smashing crazy with Billy Corgan. And it's I'm out of fun analogies or <laughs> jokes. Morgan Freeman, Tommy Lee, Jack McBrayer. The list goes on and on. I'm sure we will all be tuning in to Disney Plus on May 10th. Plus, I think everyone knows that the premise of the show is that it's the Electric Mayhem recording their first album all of these years later. We've known them for decades, and <laughs> who knew that they'd never actually recorded an album? <laughs> but that album, The Electric Mayhem, is set for release on vinyl on May 12th. So not only do we get to see them in the recording of the album, but we can then hold the album in our hands. Much like the Freeform Summer lineup which we can't hold in our hands because it's just <laughs> esoteric. It's just out there. <laughs> they did announce a whole bunch of shows coming back. The second season of Cruel Summer in June, as well as Grownish with its sixth and final season coming back. And a new animated series called Praise PD coming in July. So 
So get ready for a lot of freeform fun this summer. But before that, you know what it's time for. What could it be? I appreciate you asking, Sherry. It's time for Five <laughs> Fantastic Things to Watch This Weekend, presented by State Farm. For complete details and listings, visit d23.com. And remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Now, this week, the theme is Spider-Man, because there's oh, yeah. not one, there's not two, there's not three, but there are four Spider-Man films new to the Disney Plus library and one bonus. Sherry, what's up first? Up first, what better to start with than Spider-Man? Oh, yeah. Available to stream on Disney Plus, the origin story. Go back to where it all began with Tobey Maguire, Kirsten Dunst, Willem Dafoe. I love this movie. And I haven't seen it in forever, so I'm excited to to stream it. The OG. Well, and if you like one, why not stick around for two? The second one featuring, of course, Alfred Molina as Doc Ock is also going to be on Disney+. Plus. And then if you like two, why not go for three? <laughs> Spider-Man 3 with Thomas Hayden Church is also available to stream on Disney Plus this weekend. And if you're going to do one, two, and three, you might as well stick around for the amazing Spider-Man, new to the library for Disney Plus, and is the very first to star our best friend, Andrew Garfield. I wish he was my best friend, but okay. <laughs> Manifesting. Speaking of new <laughs> Spider-Man... Why not stick around for our bonus, Captain America Civil War, Tom Holland's first appearance as Spider-Man, available to stream on Disney+. Plus. On to our guest, who is no stranger to Disney, nor this podcast. He has been a producer, associate producer, or executive producer on some of Disney's best and most beloved films, including Beauty and the Beast, The Lion King, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Atlantis, The Lost Empire, Frankenweenie, and, and Maleficent, as well as the Disney nature films Earth, Oceans, African Cats, and Chimpanzee. He directed the documentaries Waking Sleeping Beauty and Howard, and he hosted Adventure Through the Walt Disney Archives. Please welcome back to the show, Disney legend Don Hahn. Yay! Welcome to Yay! the show! Why, thank you. Don, it's like half the interview just reading your list of credits. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, I've had a busy few years, huh? Just a few. Just a few. Yeah. All right, Don. So you had just a touch of COVID last year during D23 Expo and weren't able to be at the Disney Legends ceremony to receive your award. So there was a little ceremony recently for you to actually celebrate. Can you tell us about it? It was amazing. You know, I um, I did have COVID. I woke up the morning of the D23 Legends ceremony and thousands of people were gathering. And I said, well, I better take my COVID test. And it was just uh, positive. And then the nurse from the hotel came up and it was still positive. And I ended up sitting there in my underwear eating all the mini bar food. <laughs> and, and that, by the way, wasn't bad. But yeah, just very recently, very kindly, Bob Iger came down and uh, we did a little presentation in Legends uh, Plaza there, which I think was the first time they had done a presentation in Legends Plaza in like 10 years or 15 years or something. It was crazy. Yeah, more since D23 Expo was when you know, 2009 was the first time they did it out of Legends Plaza. Really? Here, so yeah. Oh, man. So I felt really honored because it was just me and my family, whom I love. And to have Bob there, you know, was really special to me because I really admire the guy. I feel like uh, he is the shepherd of the company through some tough times and good times, and he didn't have to be there. The fact that he came down and said a few nice things was really meaningful to me. So yeah, we did that. Then we had corn dogs and cupcakes and went back to work. Amazing. I love it. Yeah. What was really funny is they were taking a few pictures and the, the first guy over the corn dogs table 
off the record was Bob Iger. We're on the record. That's okay. Unbelievable. I admire a gentleman who enjoys a good corn dog. Same. <laughs> One of the reasons why I picked my husband, by the way. Ah, All right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Don. So you've attended the openings of Disney 100, the exhibition in Philadelphia. And by the time this comes out in Munich, what were some highlights for you seeing the exhibition? Well, it is an amazing collection of Disney history. And if you get a chance, the show, which is now in Philadelphia, it will tour and be in several other cities. And a similar show is touring Europe. You get a chance, drop by and see it because whether you're a Disney fan or not, it's a kind of history of the 20th century and beyond and includes so much history on Walt Disney, but also all the great things that have happened in the last several years, things like the Star Wars franchise and the Marvel Universe and Pixar and such great things at the parks that are happening. So all that stuff is in this show. And to be able to go through and see some treasured artifact from, let's say, Mary Poppins, and then later a Stormtrooper costume or something like that is a real injection of not only Disney history, but just the history of the last hundred years of the film business, just about. So it was great. What was nice too, it was people of all ages, like everything at Disney is People would come with their families and there were things to enjoy for the little kids and things that were really interesting for adults who maybe hadn't seen something from their favorite movie growing up and uh, to see a drawing or an artifact from a movie was really fun for everybody, I think. Love it. Growing up, did you always want to work for Disney? I can't say I always wanted to work for Disney. I grew up in the San Gabriel Valley, which is a lovely part of Southern California, the Los Angeles area, which was largely dairy farms. In fact, the... uh, smell of dairy farms was in the air every day. And so it was close to Disneyland. To go to Disneyland was such a treat. I mean, we didn't go that often because it was expensive. I think it was $6.50 to go. <laughs> and parking was 25 cents, which, you know, was outrageous. <laughs> I've been told the prices have gone up since then. <laughs> a little. It was a such a treat because you would have seen Disneyland on television. Walt was a brilliant promoter and loved the work he was doing and his Imagineers were doing. So he loved to share it on TV. And then to go there was like walking into a movie set. I mean, to see the castle or to see something in Frontierland or Tom Sawyer Island or whatever was unbelievable, especially as a little kid. I think that gave me an appreciation of Disney my whole life. I never dreamed of working there because I thought that was probably unattainable. But at a certain point, I got a summer job there and I was working literally underground in the morgue where the old animation was stored. And that was the beginning of a long journey of being able to work there and learn because in so many ways, Disney Studios was my university. You know, it was very generous artists who were willing and happy to share their knowledge with younger people coming up, artists who had been doing great work and artists whose movies I had grown up on. I mean, I, early in my career, I was working with Wooly Reitherman and Wooly produced and directed 101 Dalmatians and Jungle Book. And those were the movies I saw when I was just a little kid. And so talk about circle of life to be able to say, oh, now I'm sitting in his office, taking Mm. notes and getting him coffee and stuff. I was just a runner was pretty unbelievable. So I just have to say, I was really lucky to be in those situations. Amazing. So being a producer can mean a lot of different things based on the projects. As a producer on Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King, what were your primary responsibilities? Every producer has a different style based on who they are. And my interests were always art and music. I was a music major in college. So animation turned out to be a really terrific place to be able to flex those muscles, you know, be able to work in both those areas. And working with people like Willie Reitherman and soon after Bernie Mattinson on Great Mouse Detective, 
I really kind of fell in love with what a producer does. I worked in animation for a little bit. Sitting at a drawing board was hard for me. I'm probably a little attention deficit. So just sitting at a board for a long time was difficult. But I love the variety. I love working with people. I admired the people I was working with. And it was really Who Framed Roger Rabbit that I got the opportunity to actually produce the animation. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done because you're starting with a blank piece of paper and pulling together talent and people. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And you're dealing mm -hmm. with egos. And But at the end of it all, you end up with this wonderful, hopefully, story and lasting story that can be around for a long time. On any movie I've worked on, I'm usually the first person on and the last person off. Right after Roger Rabbit, the head of the studio called and said, we'd like to try Beauty and the Beast. You know, Walt actually considered it, but never took it up or finished it or developed it. Ironically, I hired Mel Shaw. And Mel was an artist who worked with Walt on Bambi ages ago. And so he came in, Hans Bacher, the German artist, came in and we just filled a room with artwork and started working on beauty and turning a really beloved fairy tale into a film. So you do that. You put teams of people together and you hope they... Um, can inspire and create, and it's a casting process, it's a storytelling process, it's a creative process, it's a business process because you're working with the studio to try to make sure they're comfortable with the money you're spending and the time you're taking. And so there's a lot of communication and a lot of you know team building. If it's done right, it's really rewarding because that team ends up turning out something really special. That's so cool. So speaking of beauty, working closely with Howard Ashman, it must have really made an impact on you since more than 20 years later, you directed a film about his life. Yeah, it really did. You know, Howard was a really special guy. You know, we really haven't seen his kind since then. There are certainly brilliant people that we're working with these days, like Lin-Manuel Miranda and others, and Ellen Menken. Howard, though, was a student of musical theater, which is a great American art form. He went to college and studied American musical theater. He knew chapter and verse of pretty much every musical that had ever been written. So he had this tremendous foundation. On top of that, he had this tremendous kind of creative drive to particularly to adapt stories like, you know, his earliest success or one of them was Little Shop of Horrors, which was an adaptation of an old kind of low budget movie. And he had worked on Little Mermaid at the studio. And of course, that was a huge hit when it came out. And so Howard was this gift from above that stumbled into our studio and he was looking for a change from Broadway. He had spent some failures there also and he just wanted a change. He wanted a new chapter in his life. And so when he came to Los Angeles and worked on Mermaid and then soon after Beauty and Aladdin, it was revolutionary. He in many ways was our Walt Disney in a very different way. And if he were on this podcast, he would disagree probably, but he gave us so much in terms of the tools of storytelling and the tools of storytelling with music and song and how to put the plot in the songs. You don't just stop and sing for two, three minutes. Otherwise, the audience will just head to the bathroom. You have to really populate the movie with songs that are crucial to the story, that if you took them out, you couldn't tell the story. So you get songs like Poor Unfortunate Souls, where Ariel doesn't even know that Ursula exists at the beginning of that song, and by the end of it, she's given up her voice. Or uh, Gaston's song, where the Gaston doesn't know there's a beast up in the castle, so on the downbeat of that song, he meets Belle and she says, there's a beast in the castle and they go off and they end that song at the front door of the beast castle in about three minutes. It's condensed, beautiful musical storytelling. And that was the big gift that Howard gave us to this day. So what was it about Howard that touched you enough to want to make this movie? I feel like there must've been a personal, something personal about that as well because the amount of time that it had to have taken was immense and the, the love and care you put into the project well that's a great question and i'm not sure i've ever 
answered that question. It was difficult to watch Howard die in the middle of the AIDS crisis. So many people from the creative community were dying. And it was really, truly a death sentence when you were diagnosed with AIDS. And so that was difficult. I also felt like his story hadn't been told. I felt like it was so central to the culture of Disney and Disney animation that it was important that it be told. And I felt close enough to Howard that I felt like I might be one of a very few people that could tell that story or at least call up and ask collaborators to help me tell that story. So I felt a responsibility. I felt Howard had given me so much via Beauty and the Beast, and that turned out to be such a gift for creatively and financially and otherwise for my family. I just felt like there's a time when you have to kind of look back and say, how can, there's no way I can repay that, but how can you try to tell that story so at least he's acknowledged for what he was? And I was lucky because everybody, including Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg and Howard's sister and Howard's partner and so many people were more than willing to open up and talk about it and gave me really wonderful long stories about Howard and their experiences, you know, being able to sit there with Alan Menken for an hour and a half and listen to his feelings about Howard sitting with Roy Disney at the time and hearing what they thought, you know, so being able to get their perspective. So I love doing that. I love documentary filmmaking for the journalism of it all and preserving that story, which I was really afraid wasn't going to get preserved. And that's why I did it. I love that answer. You've worked with so many incredible talents over the years. Was there someone you were really nervous about meeting? <laughs> oh, man, James Earl Jones, mm-hmm. larger than life, bigger voice than life, but humble guy. We recorded at the recording studio in Hollywood. It was his favorite. It was called Buzzies. It's a terrible name for a recording studio. <laughs> <laughs> the first time he came there, he said, oh, I want to show you something. It's in my trunk. I thought, okay. So we go out to the parking lot and he opens his truck. He said, there was this yard sale down the street and they had all this great artwork and he had bought all this artwork from this person down the street who just like put things out in his driveway and was selling things. And imagine his thoughts when James Earl Jones walked up the driveway, but he was that kind of guy down to earth, you know, loves life and a great actor and hardworking The one thing I learned is that people that I really would be intimidated by are the real hard workers who are where they are in life because of their work ethic. Angela Lansbury was another one. And in the end, you aren't intimidated by them because they are real people who have all the the kind of worries that we all do about, am I good enough? You know, can I do this? And they work hard to get it right. So working with, you know, James Garner on Atlantis, Michael J. Fox, you know, so many different people over the course of my career, even on the nature films, Samuel Jackson, these people are pros and they come in and they're prepared and they're decent, you know, by and large. And so there's always a bit of intimidation just because they're such personalities. And that usually dissolves once you start working because they're all about the work and so are we. So it's been good being able to encounter those people along the way. Mm. All right. Is there someone you worked with other than James Earl Jones who was totally different, but like good different? than how you imagined they might be? Eddie Murphy, really quiet, and is the kind of person that really, the light goes on when you're filming, he lights up and delivers. And the rest of the time, he's almost introverted. You know, nice guy, but just very quiet and preparatory, I would say. And almost the same, we had Steve Martin on this set when we did Fantasia 2000. A little bit the same, such a broad comedian. And yet when we met with him about the lines and what we were going to do, he's very... You know, very humble, very collaborative, 
But when the camera rolled, he just lit up and was funny as could be. Penn and Teller also worked on that movie and were the same way, you know, just really collaborative. And we were telling him what magic tricks we wanted to do and say, here's an illusion we think would be really funny for Sorcerer's Apprentice and, you know, collaborative people. But just, just a few people out there, and I keep coming back to James and Angela Lansbury and others, Rowan Atkinson, Mr. Bean, who are just incredible. And when, again, the microphone starts rolling and the tape is rolling, give you such wonderful, unexpected things. Jeremy Irons, rich, rich actor. And they all give you more than you could ever dream of because what you can put on the page in the form of a script is limiting. And so you dream of getting some sort of interpretation. And then when you bring these people in, they just kill. It's just exciting. And Jeremy Irons, you know, he rode his motorcycle to the recording session. So this guy gets off, takes off his leather jacket and his helmet and comes into the studio. So they end up being real people too, which is nice. That's amazing. I love that. So I know you've been involved in work on Disney's theme parks. Can you talk about some of those projects? Well, yeah, I suppose my first Disney love, because I spent so much time at Disneyland, was Imagineering in the parks. In fact, right now I'm writing a book on kind of the origins of Disneyland for Disney Editions. It's my chance kind of to revisit those early loves I had for the parks. When I did get to work on them, it was long ago. And usually for one of the foreign parks, I remember we did a film for Tokyo Disneyland, you know, an animated film that was part of their kind of opening day package. It was called Meet the World. I did another pieces of films for Epcot. Everybody worked on Epcot when that was happening in the 80s. A film for the Energy Pavilion, a film for the Seas Pavilion about diving. And they were animated. And we were really fortunate always that Imagineering would bring them to us because it was a break from the features, which usually takes two or three years. And they have a little short film about <laughs> the, the Seas Pavilion film was about getting the bends, you know, the nitrogen getting trapped in your lungs. <laughs> and I gave it to a great animator named Joe Lance Cicero who was a CalArts graduate and really good guy. And he animated and he just fell in love with it and, and also fell in love with Imagineering. Ended up leaving animation and had a long career at Imagineering after that. So those films, much like when Walt Disney was alive, became the entrance point for a lot of people to go to Imagineering and kind of try that out. So we got a lot of people like Mark Davis, who animated Tinkerbell and Maleficent and Cinderella. But then Walt said, hey, I'm doing these theme parks. You're going to go work for me over there. So he ends up designing for Pirates of the Caribbean and the Haunted Mansion and the Jungle Cruise. You know, it's wow. like these multiple chapters and it's incredibly refreshing for artists to do that. And it was for me. So I'd be able to do that. And most recently I did a um, Beauty and the Beast film for the French Pavilion. That was so great because I love Epcot just because it's, you know, part of what I've worked on. And I love the film that plays in Epcot, that amazing film about France itself. But we did a film that could play a little bit more during the daytime for a general audience, all about Beauty and the Beast. It's a little 15-minute film that plays every day, and I'm really proud of it. I love it. You get to see uh, Beauty and the Beast from LeFou's perspective. You do, which is a very silly idea, but it was basically, you know, what's the real story behind Beauty and the Beast? Who was the real matchmaker, according to that little movie? Turns out it was LeFou. Who knew? Who <laughs> What is the coolest Disney thing you have ever been able to do? Well, certainly getting a Disney Legends Award is at the top of the list. Unexpected, wonderful. But wow, sometimes it's going to... I remember when the Disney Studio opened in Florida, at the time called the Disney MGM Studio, before it was opened, I went like the night it was going to open 
and the streets were filled with forklifts with palm trees planting plants where there weren't any and people like painting signs and the paint was wet everywhere and it was just this chaotic kind of construction zone and i keep thinking this is going to open tomorrow you know <laughs> very cool because you can really enjoy the energy and the panic that goes into making these theme parks sometimes i did a similar thing we have a really good friends the verities sean verity was the you know head of a lot of the project management at hong kong disney at disneyland and before it opened we visited him and he walked us around before it was even opened when they were you know paving main street and trying to figure out what that park was and to be able to walk through an unfinished park and see the inspiration start to be built and start to come to life end up being really memorable times at least in my life I suppose we all do. We love seeing behind the scenes a little bit and just to see the labor of it all, to see someone who loves laying bricks and is doing it the best he or she can, and to see somebody who's a great sign painter and a great craftsperson and a great designer. I mean, those are the things that Disney really does uniquely and is able to pull together all those artisans. So like visiting those theme parks early was really fun for me because the geek in me just absolutely loves that. And then, you know, this sounds odd, but I often go on Disney Vacation Club cruises or events. Ryan March invites me. And I, what I like about that, or D23, is I get to meet people who are the audience because, frankly, I'm the audience too. And I love things from Disney and always have. It's just a kick in the pants to see people and hear what they're excited about and talk to them about what I'm doing. And it's so energetic and so fun. And people are so loyal to the idea of Disney and the culture around Disney that it's something I really value. And um, I think it's kind of precious about this company that doesn't exist really in any other company. So those are always good days. We know you are a big Disney history buff. If there was one question that you could ask Walt Disney himself, what would it be? You know, I'll give you the real answer and you don't have to use it. We were hoping you were going to give us some fake answer. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fascinated with Walt Disney because he was... Oh man, such a persistent guy. And it's not that he had all the talent in the world, but he sure knew how to surround himself with talent. Mm -hmm. But he went through some really hard times in his life, hard to the point of his doctor saying, you're working too hard, you're getting stressed out, you need to leave and go on a holiday. I and mean, this happened when he was working on Mickey Mouse cartoons and his doctor said, you gotta get out of here. And so he did, he left and went to the Mississippi and then later to Havana and up to New York. So those kinds of times interest me because you always hear about the good times and rightly so, and the successes, but to hear how he might have dealt with those stresses and tough, tough times in life uh, that we all go through would be really interesting to me because he did have to deal with them, bankruptcies, and he had a big falling out with Roy at a certain point where Walt wanted to stretch out into theme parks and make Disneyland and virtually left his own company to go do that. And then had to turn back and kind of coax his company along so that, you know, they would get in, in bed and be partners with Disneyland and some of the parks. So there was a tremendous amount of turmoil in the 1950s about the next generation of what was going to happen at Disney. And Walt was leading the pack. He's a guy that could have easily sat on his laurels and just said, you know, I got Mickey Mouse and I made a bunch of movies. I'm going to go play golf. And he didn't. You know, he was ahead of it all saying, I, we have to keep innovating. We have to keep doing interesting movies. We have to change our style. And out of it came... 101 Dalmatians and Sleeping Beauty and Disneyland. And so that kind of innovation and persistence and just smarts is really inspiring. I would just like to know how he, how he managed that. A lot of it might be intuitive, but how do you get through those tough times when you're really down and depressed and when things don't go your way and 
how do you keep that spark and that spirit? Because life is hard and chaotic and working in a big company is chaotic. So how you deal with that, I think, is a, an important part of any creative enterprise. And I would like to know from Walt what he thought. Yes, I love that question. So switching gears a little bit, we love to do Disney favorites. And our only rule, which might be a little bit difficult for you, is that you cannot select a project that you have worked on. So what is your favorite Disney animated film? I genuinely love 101 Dalmatians for a number of reasons. It's about dogs, you know, and so that's got a lot of points in its favor right there. It's about London, also good. A great story. And then most importantly, it's kind of a masterpiece of mid-century modern art. The way it's styled, the way the characters and backgrounds are styled, the look of it, and then the storytelling, it's got it all. And I admire that movie so much. Favorite Disney song? Peter Pan, also a very close second to my favorite movie. I think it starts out with the second star on the right, that song. It's another wishing song, like When You Wish Upon a Star. There's such good music in Peter Pan, and I feel like that style of music is something I really appreciate, probably because I grew up on it. And even though I admire music that came later on Jungle Book or whatever, and certainly the generation that I come from, the musicals around Cinderella and Peter Pan and Alice, those are really special to me. Okay, favorite Disney live-action film? Aside from Gus the Field Goal Kicking Mule. And, um, <laughs> what, what could be better? It is a classic. Uh, is. North Avenue Irregulars. All good movies, actually. Wow, what action movie? Um, uh, 20,000 Leagues is good. But I'm trying to think of one that just knocks me out. You know, uh, Dead Poets Society of the later mm. Disney genre films is mm -hmm. a brilliant piece of filmmaking. Carpe Diem. Yeah. And so uh, if you haven't seen that as an audience, I really suggest that Disney infrequently gets nominated for Oscars. And that's one that actually was nominated and awarded. And I think there's a few of those movies like Good Morning Vietnam that Robin Williams starred in at the time, along with Dead Poet Society, that are really wonderful films in a little era when some really special live action movies were being made. Favorite Disney sidekick? <laughs> sidekick or psychic? <laughs> Madame Leota. Madame Leota obviously is my favorite Disney sidekick. Favorite sidekick? These are, by the way, very difficult questions. Cronk. Ooh. Pull the yes, lever. I was an executive producer on that movie, so that's cheating. Ah. But I feel it's worth the cheat because he's <laughs> perhaps the best sidekick ever. But aside from that, wow. You know, sidekicks are tough, they can be very annoying. They can be <laughs> additive to the story, and certainly they're there so that the main character has someone to talk to, but they can also be detractive from the story if you're not careful. Yeah, I'll go from the earlier movies. Oh, characters like Figaro, mm. the cat in Pinocchio, who never says a word, by the way, but is beautifully animated by Eric Larson, is a favorite. You know, charming, sweet, and just so much personality comes out of that character. The mice in Cinderella, Jacques and Gus Gus, brilliant. So those are the kind of things that stand out where you have a character that's part of the plot. The objects in Beauty and the Beast, again, not fair because I worked on it, but <laughs> that clock teapot and candelabra are great sidekicks because they have a vested interest in the story. That if the beast problem doesn't get solved, theirs doesn't either. So to be mm. human again, they have to get the beast problem solved. And that was a great breakthrough on that movie to really give them part of the story. So they're not just hanging around talking to Belle. They're actually deeply involved in getting a solution. And those are the best sidekicks. Favorite Disney theme park attraction? 
Pirates of the Caribbean, great storytelling, incredible technology at the time, great set design and set decoration, special effects, entertainment, animatronics. You know, of course, the Haunted Mansion is right there in league with it, but I think Pirates is a cool attraction for its scope and scale. Really good. I think we all know this, but favorite theme park snack? I have been told that I have an appreciation for corn dogs, and I do. I knew it. <laughs> you know, well, it combines the hot dog, which is my my heritage is largely Polish and German, so there's no surprise. And then uh, cornmeal. Mm. I mean, it's the perfect combination of foods, and you get a free stick when you're done. Um, so <laughs> I, I just think, like, why would you really consider anything else? There is Dole Whip, also a second favorite. And, you know, now that you mention it, I do enjoy a churro. But I'm going to go with corn dogs, final answer. Love it. All right, this one may be a little bit harder. Favorite theme park restaurant? The Blue Bayou at Disneyland. Mm, good one. Yeah, nice, atmospheric, ambitious, good food. Really, really wonderful. I mean, there's. I don't want to get into Florida because there's so many good restaurants in Florida that you really can't pick one, especially if you start getting into like Epcot and the hotels and things like that. But the Blue Bayou is great and it's been around forever and it has such a wonderful atmosphere to it. You just feel like you're transported to another time and place, and uh, you can't beat that. Favorite Disney resort to stay at? Once again, these are really difficult questions. Well, I mean, traditionally, it's the Yacht and Beach Club is where I stay and go there, not only because it's a, a nice resort, but they do have a sandy bottom pool. And just saying the word sandy bottom pool relaxes me. Also, it is close to the back door of Epcot, so you can sneak in that back gate. And mm. around that little lagoon there, you know, tons of restaurants, walking distance to the studio tour. There really is no better location. I hesitate to say that because now it will be packed with visitors. Mm -hmm. But it's a great place. I really do like it there. We are sadly at our very last Disney favorite, which we ask all of our guests at the end of every interview. And we've asked you before, so we're here for a new one. But what is your favorite Disney memory? Oh, goodness. I think the difficult thing is I started in 1976, so I've been knocking around Disney for 47 years, which is an incredible statistic. And so to say favorite memory is difficult. It would inevitably have to be when you see something for the first time that becomes somewhat legendary. And that in my book would be Glenn Keane's animation of the beast transforming at the end of Beauty and the Beast. There's a little section there that is virtually one shot and the beast is lying there dying and he does die. And Belle says, I love you just in time before the last petal falls. And it's a scene that is an amazing combination of the animation art. Glenn studied Rodin sculptures extensively when he animated that. The special effects on it are extraordinary. And it is a very difficult, very profound piece of animation. There's not one piece of dialogue in it not a song, it's just a score. And it's a transformation, resurrection scene that is my favorite. Knowing Glenn and the work that went into it, it is a very, very special moment in my life. We were actually out of time on Beauty and the Beast, and we were out of money on Beauty and the Beast. And the deadline was there, and he had this very long scene to animate. He said, I don't think I can get it done, and what do I do? And I said, wisely at the time, don't worry about it, take as long as you need. And he did. And we just stopped other things around him. We kept everybody busy with other things. And uh, he took a month or so and created that brilliant, brilliant, kind of masterful piece of animation. And when you can collaborate with an artist like that, and 
uh, help them do their job. The great saying that I learned from Kathy Kennedy, who runs Lucasfilm, is a producer hires the best people you possibly can, and then you stay out of their way. If I'm successful in a Disney legend, that's because I've really signed up to that idea of what a producer should be. Wow, what a beautiful way to bring that 360, Don. It's almost like you know how to tell a story. I don't know. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> it's all my kombucha. It's really what helps me through the day. Kombucha and a dull whip. <laughs> Thank you so much, Don. This is great. Congratulations. Hopefully we'll be able to get you back again soon. Well, thanks for asking. It's always flattering to talk to you guys and flattering to be asked all these questions. It is like the Proust questionnaire for Disney. <laughs> so You're the first person to accuse us of that. <laughs> and, and probably so. So um, no, it's really great. Yeah, always good seeing you guys. Thank you. You know, I really loved hearing him talk about Howard Ashman and how it inspired his storytelling. And, you know, it's really cool to hear someone who's so inspirational be inspired by someone else. Mm, I agree. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for listening to D23 Inside Disney. Don't forget to like and share this episode wherever you listen or subscribe. And if you want to chat with us, hashtag D23 Inside Disney. And for all the latest Disney info, check out D23.com. We'll be back next week with more Disney news and a fantastic guest on an all-new episode of D23 Inside, Inside Disney. Disney.